From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 64. We've got one of the really bright minds from college baseball, a pitching coach at a program that's really surged in the recent years, and a lot of it has to do with the great work he's done with his athletes. I've had an opportunity to collaborate with him on a number of players, and I always feel like I learn something when we hop on the phone or I see him speak at a seminar. So it's going to be a really good one for not just the players, but also parents um, who may be going through the recruiting process. Lots of really good lessons here, so I'm excited for today. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy free, paleo, keto, vegan friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest played college baseball at Appalachian State and graduated with a bachelor's degree in physical education. He began his coaching career at Pfeiffer University in 2005 when he served as the Falcons pitching coach and outfield instructor. He then received his master's degree in organizational business and leadership from Pfeiffer in 2006. He then spent two seasons as the pitching coach at Catawba College, as well as coaching the Ashboro Copperheads of the Coastal Plain League during the summer of 07. From 2008 to 2011, he served as the pitching coach and recruiting coordinator at Wofford College. In 2012, he went to USC Upstate and served as the pitching coach while also carrying responsibilities for recruiting and strength and conditioning. He then returned to Pfeiffer as a head baseball coach and eventually associate athletic director. In 2017, he joined the Duke baseball staff as the pitching coach. Please welcome the show, Dusty Blake. Welcome to the show, Dusty. 
How's it going? It's great. Thanks for coming on, man. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, heck yeah, um, this will be fun. You gave uh, one of the the better presentations I've seen in a while in the baseball field last uh, last December at Pitcherpalooza in Nashville. So I'm I'm intrigued to talk a little a uh, little of the nerd stuff. But before that, I think cool. we should speak yeah. maybe in generality. So let's talk a little bit about your your path to coaching. How did you initially make the the transition from playing to coaching, and and what what drew you to it? Yeah, I, I wish I had a, a a great story about a playing career and, and, and things that went really well. But unfortunately, uh, I kind of got on this path really quick uh, when I learned uh, as a college player, really, when I got to, to campus, uh, how far away I was compared to, to where I needed to be to really compete at a Division One level. And so uh, almost instantly, I, I knew that I was going to have to to expedite that process a little more than, than the practices were going to allow me to uh, within the, you know, the NCAA rules and the 20 hours a week type deal. So, uh, man, I, I just I realized then uh, I had some, uh, if you want to call it, you know, passion or interest in trying to, to move the needle there and figure out how to, to do things better. Um, I remember I was this is during the time of the VHS. So, um, <laughs> unfortunately, it was, a, it was a while back. But I remember I would I would record. Uh, Clemens or uh, Pedro or Maddox, you know, any of those guys, if they were on the mound, I, I would record it, come back and look at it after practice. I remember I, I bought Hershiser's book. Uh, it was called Between the Lines. And I think Mazzoni had a book, something like Pitch Like a Pro maybe or something. Um, I, I remember uh, Harvey Dorfman came to, to visit us and went through uh, a little bit of things related to the mental game. But just kind of all those things combined really got me locked in earlier maybe than, than most. And, just trying to figure out what was going on and, and how to improve in, in some areas related to, to pitching. And as a default, it, it really helped uh, in the coaching world when, when my playing career finished. What's the saying? I think those who can do and those who can't coach. You know. I'm oh, like, my gosh. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll fall right in line with that for I, sure. I was a fantastically mediocre athlete myself, so we've, <laughs> we've got that in common. Um, so, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, I hadn't realized that before you became pitching coach at Duke that you had actually been a head coach um, previously. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, uh, you know, you know, first off, talk about that. How does how's the head coaching role kind of prepare you more specifically for being a pitching coach role, or is that just a, a normal progression to maybe go and be the head coach at a smaller school before you go to a you know a pitching coach or hitting coach or recruiting coordinator role at a at a larger university? No, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's a normal progression. Um, I think that without question, helped me become a little more well rounded now as an assistant, understanding in some regards what's on a head coach's plate. Um, you, you know, for me and, and everybody is different in their circumstances and what they're managing, but it, it's really felt like over time, uh, the, the need to fundraise more became bigger and the need I, I took on a, an associate AD role. And so the administrative, uh, things that, that came, became involved with my day to day responsibility. And I just felt like I was getting further away as a head coach from kind of the reason you get into it, which is to, you know, practice and develop plans and help develop players and uh, those sorts of things. And, it, you know, it, it helped me see everything that, that could potentially be on, on the plate of a head coach. And I enjoyed you. You enjoy the autonomy and you enjoy being able to manage and control your schedule and your practice plans and some things like that. But um, I would say that experience helped me grow up a lot. Yeah. Um, and then I also think, uh, again, coming back into an assistant role just just gives me a little bit more perspective in, 
again, what, what our head coach is, is trying to work through each day before he gets to the field and not, not making it about, you know, pounding my chest saying what the pitchers need, but just how, how can we make all this work together to, to, to make everything float? Absolutely. So, and I'm curious, I know you've seen it at, at multiple levels, right? In different mm-hmm. divisions and obviously division one ACC now, how have you seen college baseball evolve? Cause you, you, you first got into coaching 2004, if I'm not mistaken, it was 16 yeah. years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. How, um, how do you see things change? Is it the recruiting? Is it the way the game's played? What are the, the big differences now? Yeah, I think the efficiency, um, getting away from some of the traditional stuff, uh, has all improved in my opinion. You know, you used to hear things from a pitcher's end, you know, point the ball to second base. You know, you got to get your elbow up, finish, bend your back when you finish that type of stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can just, we don't have to guess on those things now. Um, we can see what's going on. We've got enough technology and, and there are enough resources out there to really tell us where we need to lock in and maybe where to leave some of the, the, the old traditions that, that were being taught. Um, and then, you know, I think one thing that, that may have changed for me, uh, more recently, and, and it's a little tied into some of the, the more, uh, popular narratives now, but it, it's just fastball usage used to be really the only option for most pitchers. Like you're going to go out, you're going to pitch on your fastball, you're going to work off your fastball. And there's a lot of validity to that. And there are, there are several guys that can do that really well. But if you look back, this was something that uh, Strami was sharing with me. Um, if you look back at the Astros, uh, not the Astros, I'm sorry, the, the, it was Syndergaard, it was the Mets and uh, the, the Cardinals. And Syndergaard, was starting against Carlos Martinez. I think it was April 26th and 2018. Um, combined, they throw around, I think, 192 pitches or something like that. Uh, I think there were 85 total fastballs thrown. Mm-hmm. And the number of swing and miss fastballs thrown between both of those guys out of around 85 was zero. <laughs> and those are really good pitchers, right? Like, Syndergaard may have the, the highest grade on a fastball that, that you can have in the major league. So, I felt like at some point maybe we started to learn like some pitchers just need to use their fastball to steal strikes. You know, they, they don't need to pitch off of it. They don't have to always feel like that's the pitch they've got to challenge guys with. And, and just paying attention to some things like that where everybody has so many potential advantages that we can maximize that we've just got to continue to shift out of some of the old traditions. I love that. That's really, really good stuff. And, you know, you even look at the best pitchers in the game, right? I know Kluber and yeah. Scherzer, you know, in 2017, those guys both won Cy Youngs. Both of them had career low fastball usage percentages. Hitters yeah. are getting good, too. Well, <laughs> hey, and, and a team you're you're pretty familiar with now, yeah. uh, I think in 2019, the Yankees had the highest average uh, pitching staff average velocity uh, in, in the major leagues, and they had the lowest fastball usage, I think, in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a trend there for sure that's working. Absolutely. So, well, you know, maybe that leads into the next question. Let's let's talk about the non-negotiables of successful pitching. You know, like what hasn't changed in that time? What do you have to do well? You know, a to advance to college ball, b to become a you know a college you know regular that gets a bunch of innings and opportunities, and then c you know the the guy that actually you know advances onto pro ball and succeeds there. Yeah. I think that one's, you know, for me, really clear. It's two words, man. You got to win counts, period. Yeah. Um, if if you're uh, winning counts, you'll see uh, really good hitters aren't quite as good when you're in an advantage count as a pitcher, and they'll chase a little bit more. They can exp- they'll expand the zone for you a little bit more. Um, hitters that aren't quite as successful consistently become a lot better if you're not winning counts. So. 
just in, in every scenario, if we win counts, we're going to have a better chance to win games and then so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's changed. Everybody, you know, you used to hear the most, you know, the best pitch in baseball strike one. Um, and, and, and in some regards, it's true. I, I did a, a little bit of a, uh, like a breakdown of our staff. And this was something that we, we kind of, we, we try to revisit things, um, and, and make sure that we're, we're staying connected. But the difference in swing and miss, Ahead in the count to behind in the count for us in 2019 was over 10%. Um, the, the hits plus, uh, free bases essentially, um, ahead, uh, was about 10% less allowed than when we were behind. And the batting average on ball and play was over 25 points, uh, higher when we were behind compared to if we were ahead. So just a- across the board, if we're winning counts, things are going to happen in our favor more often. And this is a probably a, I don't want to say it's an unfair question, maybe a broad question. Like, is, is that something you can recruit, you know, or, or do you recruit the stuff, the elite velocity, you know, the secondary pitch, and then you, you, you attack that in the context of just understanding like how important a first pitch strike is or something like that. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's both, you know, because pitching still a skill. And so we know we can manipulate and develop and, build on their ability to to execute and demonstrate the skill and the consistency of it. So I, I think you can teach it. There, there have been guys, I mean, uh, and sometimes as we talk about teaching it, it's not always the movement pattern. Yeah. And sometimes the movement pattern's good, except in certain circumstances. So you, you may have the guy that's developed a better pattern with his, if you want to call it mechanics, and then, you know, in a game, it doesn't, express itself the same way or you get a lefty in the box and for whatever reason that visual throws some guys off so I think it's recruitable there are certain guys that just absolutely fill it up and you know go get them type deal you know what I mean because that's that expedites some of the other things he may be able to work on with pitch shape and and some other things like that but um, at the same time we have had guys that uh, if you look at uh, a year-to-year basis I mean we we saw a pretty decent uh uh, a jump with our ability to challenge hitters this year compared to last year it was a, a small sample size this year, but the, the track we were on was in a much better uh, place than we started on last year with, with a lot of the similar guys. And so sometimes you just have to really zero in on what's the disconnect there. Is it um, their ability? They just need to throw more. Is it their movement pattern? Is it the intent, the environment, those sorts of things. I love it. No, I didn't realize this until I, I kind of stalked your bio a little bit just to start preparing the bio for, for the show read. And, um, you know, I, I knew coach Pollard had done a great job at Duke and they had really surged onto the national stage. I didn't realize how extreme the turnaround had been. I, I knew coach Pollard obviously from his, his time beforehand at App State where they had some big wins and almost, almost went to the, you know, pretty far in the NCAA tournament. But I saw a statistic that Duke had 10 30 win seasons in the 110 years before coach Pollard took over. But since he took over the program in 2012, they've already had five seasons of 30 or more wins and they were probably on track for a sixth one here in 2020 before it was shut down. So I know you've, you've been there for a good chunk of that time um, and, and worked with him in the past. So what do you think the crucial factors really were for, for turning that program around? What did he do differently, um, you know, with, with his, with his culture, with his approach to recruiting, whatever it may be um, that, that turned it around so pronounced? Yeah, I think it's all above. I mean, there, there aren't a lot of people I've met in, in any phase of, of life or business or sport, whatever that, that have like the, the hunger and the energy that he brings every day to find a better way to go out there and take advantage of the opportunity. And so 
you know, without question, if you're a player and you see that kind of energy out of your head coach, uh, you, you don't have a chance to become the guy that's out there checking the box, you know, uh, or emotionally indifferent to what's going on. And, and it's the same thing for us as coaches. Like we know every day at practice, he's going to be out there bringing it locked in. Um, and, and so it just kind of like anything, you're, you're either going to, you know, give off energy or you're going to suck other people's energy away. And he's without question, you know, one of the, one of the energy givers that we have out there every day that's, that's helping other guys around him uh, continue to, to push themselves. So that, that's one thing. And, you know, just for, for me as an assistant coach, it's real easy for a guy to challenge you to come out and continue to help your guys develop and, and challenge you to make sure, you know, you're, you're doing your job when you see how hard he's working. Um, it's not like it's, you know, he's showing up at 1030 or 11 and then dipping out for, for nine holes of golf in the afternoon or yeah. something. I mean, he, he just, he's a, a consummate professional in how he manages his job. He, he works his butt off. Uh, he, he's just um, done a really good, job collectively and understanding again from the recruiting side from the professionalism side and the presentation of how our guys uh you know handle themselves on campus and just across the board um there there's a difference in you know having a head coach and then somebody that's running a program and i feel like you know he he's got a really good uh feel for the, the best way to run a program you know, and so we, we had six Duke guys who came down during the pandemic and, mm-hmm. um, sh- shout out to Mrs. Rothenberg for, for putting them up at his house and, <laughs> no uh, question. And, and, and cooking for a lot of big eaters. So, uh, and I'm curious, like, I, I, I think, you know, you see a very, uh, you know, consistent message when you, when you look at all those guys, like super hard workers, crazy polite, good, good listeners, very, very coachable. And you, you always see like the, the blue collar slogan, yes. um, yes. you know, on, on a lot of the t-shirts and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so I'm curious, like, is, are those things that you recruit? Are those things that you develop? Is it a combination of the two? Like what, how do you bring a, you know, cause you hear about the, you hear of Duke, right? You think high academic, you think, you know, somewhat of maybe a, like an, uppity perspective on the universe or whatever it may be like <laughs> it's not exactly like you know uh you know the sons of of plumbers and, and roofers and floors and things like that so I'm, I'm curious what you do to to kind of you know instill that perspective on your players yeah well the, you know blue collars more it, it's not really from from our perspective it's not the socioeconomic status it's more about how you come to work as the same guy every day and, and grind on it and you, you know we you could say you know, JJ, our recruiting coordinator, does an incredible job. And, and one of the things that he and I were, were talking about earlier is like, how many players do we have a chance to recruit compared to the number of players that could help us on the field because of the academic standards and, and things like that? And, and I think you know, we're around 1% in, in our mind. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, he, he does a great job and uh, is one of the, the reasons I'm able to, to, to really help you know, with, with the success of, of the guys that we have. But, um, yeah, it, there's there's no question there are things that guys uh, demonstrate um, that suggest they're a Duke-type kid. Um, and it is, you know, how – are they feeling sorry for themselves when they hit an infield pop-up or do they still get down the line? Not false hustle, but do they have uh, a, a set, set of, of standards for themselves that they bring every day to the field that we feel like translates well once they get to us, you know, how, what type of routines have they set up? Are they organized? Do they, 
you know, do they fill out the questionnaire when we send that quickly, or is that something that just lingers in their in their email for a couple of days? Um, how, how good are they at returning phone calls or, or texts or things like that? So there's definitely a recruitable aspect that suggests somebody that can handle uh, not just the the expectations uh, as a person and then as an athlete, and then you know the the biggest as a student because uh, I think when I talk with our guys, they told me about. The average is around 16 to 20 hours a week that they spend out of class on class related assignments or studying. So there's just a lot you got to manage there. Sometimes at the end of the day, it's your day's done and your commitment's over and it's it's time to go to bed almost. So there just isn't a lot of gap time for for guys to to get lost and, and get on the wrong path. I love it. Um, well, you know, to, you know, it's a great segue because you just talked about the academics at Duke. And I, I think we can agree that just about every parent on the planet, you know, with a son who plays baseball would love for, you know, sports to be that avenue to get into a high academic school, whether it's, you know, Harvard or Cornell or, or Duke or, you know, any other high academic institution. So let's, let's kind of speak to the realities of the number game. You know, like speak to me a little bit about like the sheer volume of inquiries you get for people who want to play baseball at Duke. Like what's, what's the email inbox look like every day? <laughs> well, I, you know, I probably get primarily pitching related emails. Um, mm-hmm. So if, if you look at mine, you're, you're probably around 30. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at JJ's, who's probably getting emails from both sides as our recruiting coordinator, I'm sure it's well over 50 each day. Um, and so, yeah, it's, and the things, you know, as we're looking at, at the, the email volume, it does say a little bit more when it's personal. You know, if we get the bulk email that you can tell was sent out to a, and it says coach or, you know, it's not addressed with, with anything related to Duke, um, it's, it's harder to, 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 to buy it or accept that. Um, and then occasionally you get the email that's got the wrong coach's name at the top or <laughs> they, they've got the wrong team that they cut, didn't copy and paste out of there. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you get a sense of even how they craft an email and, and did they do it or did their parents do it? You, you get a little bit of feel for that as well. How you do one thing is how you do everything, right? No question. <laughs> um, so, and I'm, I'm curious, like what's a, what's a typical class coming into Duke look like? Is there a, is there a standard size? Or is it very heavily based on drafts and all that stuff each year? Uh, I would say we're probably close to 11 ish each year, you know, because we're going to have a couple guys. Yeah. Uh, drafted and some other opportunities there. So I'd say maybe around 10 or 11 is, is where we're going to be. Um, and uh, it, again, it can absolutely change from year to year. And obviously we're looking at a weird situation right now with some of the roster yeah. sizes and the, and the guys that have a chance to return. I got you. So, you know, so we're, we're talking about tens of thousands of people that reach out each year and, and you're, you're trying to narrow down to 11. So, Oof. you know, what, you know, you obviously talked about the ugly emails, but what are some of the biggest mistakes that, you know, high school players make in their outreach to college and honestly also their, their parents. Do you have some like top recruiting pet peeves that stand out? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I probably already mentioned a couple, but yeah, if, if they're sent a questionnaire and, and they don't follow up with it, you know, if we ask for, for transcripts and, and information like that and they can't get it to us, it, it's hard for us to move forward with anything until we can see some of those types of things and, and determine, all right, where, where are we at in this process? And, so on and so forth. And so, I, I mean, I think that's one thing, um, you know, a lot of times, not a lot of times, sometimes you'll have parents that want to lead the conversation and it's, you know, like we're, we're, we're recruiting the player, you know, we're, we're not recruiting the parents. And I know parents are part of the process and that's important uh, for us to all be on the same page, but, you know, we want to make sure that, that we're, we're talking with the, the, the player that we feel like might be a good fit for us. And then finally, yeah, if, if you're going to send an email, 
make, make it personal, you know, uh, mm-hmm. c- connect with us about why Duke is important to you and not necessarily just a broad, um, description mm-hmm. of, of what's going on. And, um, yeah. And if you're, if you're going to draft an email, be, be really good at, you know, if you're sending it to a specific coach, then, then probably get their name right and get the school right on there and, and those sorts of things. But those are, if you're paying attention to detail, which with the margins of the error that we're dealing with, you, you have to be able to do. Those are just some things that really speak out. Yeah. You always want tripwires in the process. You know, it's funny. We have our, when we have, we get over a hundred applicants for our summer internship programs at CSP. So we, we have like very meticulous requests as part of our application process, because if they don't follow those, it makes it really easy to eliminate some people who didn't pay attention. Yeah. To DJ, yeah. So it saves us some time on the back end. No question. No question. <laughs> um, so I, you know, one of the things that is actually becoming you know, more popular in the last couple of years, but now probably even more than ever in light of the pandemic, you're seeing a lot of athletes who are relying heavily on video to get recruited, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's using a, you know, something like flat ground or honestly this year, um, you know, we're, we're probably seeing a lot of kids who just aren't going to play summer games where they could even be seen. Like I know actually today, I think MLB just allowed some scouts to start going out and, and you know, looking at people. And I, I don't know where the colleges have been on that, but when you, um, when you're getting those videos, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you're looking for when you receive them, um, you know, what are the mistakes people make? I know, you know, the last thing you want to see is a guy doing a, a curl hop with a three ounce ball <laughs> into a net with right. no catcher. Like you actually want to see some, some semblance of pitching ability, but what are your, uh, what are your looks for those that you want to really see? Yeah, that, that's a good question too. And it probably relates a little bit to what we, we just talked about. Um, there are some angles that are really helpful for us to identify some of the, the positive things that may be going on in a pitching delivery um, from the open face side, so if you're standing at third base and you've got a right-handed pitcher on the mound, that angle's great for us to evaluate guys. Um, if you're standing behind a pitcher, same thing. We can see a ton of stuff with the lower half and some hand separation and things like that. Um, and then, you know, behind home plate is, is also great. You know, we can get a ton of information uh, about a pitcher and what his movement pattern is from those angles. The, the one that's kind of split between home and third base is a little tougher to, to see for us as far as maybe some of the more important areas that, that we would evaluate. Um, and then I know there's a ton of stuff that's got the, the pocket radar velocity hoked up to it, mm-hmm. or, you know, Rapsodo's got a, a nice presentation with video and then some of the metrics, but all that's incredibly helpful. Um, it, it gives us, it's not, I think some guys worry about if they don't throw a perfect pitch in there that maybe we're going to cross them off, but it just gives us an idea of the range of where they're at. It helps us understand a little bit more about what they're doing. It, it certainly helps me connect some if we have a phone call uh, about where this, this young man is, maybe some of the things he may be working on, some of my interpretation maybe. Um, but but all those are, are incredibly helpful in, in, in us getting a better sense of uh, what's actually happening in his pitching delivery. Right on. So I, I spoke earlier about your presentation in uh, in Nashville at Pitching mm-hmm. Palooza back in, in December, and you delved into a lot of your work with TrackMan, um, you know, on, on a number of fronts. So talk to me a little bit about the, you know, the first places you're looking when you're working with your guys, whether it's, you know, when they initially report to campus in late summer, early fall, um, or whether you're actually doing stuff in season, guys. What, what are the, the specific metrics you look at the most? Um, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, and I think this is something that, you know, as we've all uh, been on a thousand Zoom calls in the last couple months, um, it's been cool to, to hear some some different people and different coaches talk about their interpretation of some of this. But for me, I think the first thing before you even look at data, um, in my opinion, is you just have to have an, 
an opinion on with this player what your definition of a good pitch is. So what like what are the results of his fastball that would make me feel like it's an effective and quality fastball? Same thing with slider, same thing with changeup. Because I'm telling you, there are guys that you could even say that Trackman hates as far as those numbers that have incredibly effective results with those pitches at, at a really high level. And you want to start somewhere to help them grow and develop. But I think it's smart instead of having some pseudo type uh, opinions on what validates a pitch as being effective based on data. I think sometimes it's good to look at it from the reverse end and say, all right, as we look at how this pitcher attacks hitters and the feedback we're getting from these pitches, what do we see that needs the most attention? Um, because a lot of times it may not be the pitch that you would assume based on the track man data. But with that being said, um, everybody has different connections to what impacts uh, their performance, maybe a little bit more. If you look at, and I'll try not to get too geeked out here. Um, if, if you look at, extension and velocity and IVB and vertical approach angle and spin rate and tilt and release height and vertical release angle, horizontal break, release side, all those contribute. And for some guys, they have a bigger role in what fluctuates within their performance. So one example this year is we had a young man that's been up to you know, 93s uh, some in, in some of his outings, and we noticed occasionally there were a lot of 89s going on. Um, and he felt good bullpens. We were in the 92 to three range. And then just randomly in some games, we used to see these kind of outlier 89s, but there's a consistency of that happening. And so as we calm through his stuff, you know, we don't see any out, you know, outside of the velocity, we're, we're trying to find some things. We, we don't think we've overcooked his CNS. Uh, we don't feel like his, his pattern had changed greatly, at least from the, from the eye and, and what you could see on video. But we roll to extension, and essentially every time he was over seven feet with his extension, his velo was 89. If he got under seven feet with his extension, that's when he was between 90 and 93. And it was to the, like, to that number. I don't, I mean, seven foot for him was just a, a big number there, but a threshold. But it was like for him, that's something we have to pay attention to now. If, if what's contributing in his stride to that extension, becoming a little bit overcooked, then we've got to be aware of it and then make sure that's an adjustment that, that we can work off of in his bullpen and his next time out. So for him, that would be one area. Um, a, a combination of like induced vertical break and approach angle, I think get misread in, in a lot of scenarios. Um, so there's a, a an MLB guy I work with some uh, in, in the off season who is 96 to 100. Um, his spin rate on his fastball is pretty true in, in around 24, 2500. Um, Velo is obviously pretty, pretty high. His, his IVB is in the 20s. So all those things would suggest we, we've got to pitch up. But he noticed just on his own, he's like, man, I get barreled at the top of the zone. And then we look at his approach angle. And so as you look at vertical approach angle and part of you know what we talked about in Nashville, is it, it, it relates really specifically to the part of the zone that you're throwing to. So you can't really get into an average with that without saying the average at the top of the zone or the middle of the zone or the bottom of the zone. And 
for him, because he was so steep in that approach angle at the top of the zone, guys were able to run into it more. And so if he got above the zone, it became a challenge. But he was getting lower exit velos um, and better results from ball and play um, on the pitch down in the zone because of how steep it was. Because, he, again, he's got an above average uh, uh, release height uh, that, that creates that steepness. Um, so that's kind of a scenario where three of those things which suggest up, and, and it's not saying he can't ever miss up, but he, he gets hit harder in the top of the zone because of that angle for him specifically. Um, you know, we have some guys with lower spin rates on their fastball that can pitch up because they've got such a low slot or a low, sorry, low slot, excuse me, a low release height and a flat angle. Um, so even though the spin rate's not great, and I think in a lot of scenarios we can over, overread the value of spin rate, um, they're having a lot of success at the top of yeah. the zone, uh, because those other numbers pan out as it relates to, you know, velocity and release height, uh, and that approach angle. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that you're really what you're looking for is carry, it, you know, and spin sure. rate, yeah. spin efficiency. Those are, those are just avenues to which they get it. If you have a unique, you know, uh, you know, vertical approach angle where, you know, it seems like the ball's taking off, you know, Scherzer are being a great example. Like you can get away more. Now that you have guys that, that have, you know, just huge extension, you know, Sean Doolittle's a guy who's like that. Uh, Colin Pochet's another one of our guys who's, who's actually going to be on the, the podcast soon. Who's, who's a guy who's over seven feet in extension. He's, you know, throwing over 80% fastballs when the, when the rest of the league is going the other direction. So yeah. and I think you can get away with more, but you have to appreciate that there's a lot of derivatives to that carry, right? There, there are. And that's what I think, like, until you can kind of read on where this guy's having some level of success, it's just really hard. And, and I've been on the reverse side of it. My first year in 2018 when I was introduced to TrackMan, and we, we, we had some guys that were trying to – sway towards some of these more ideal numbers and and i just noticed they got hit harder they did uh and it was like well we've got to have more horizontal break on this slider to separate it from your curveball and that was it seemed logical but as that shift happened like the slider got hit more uh and so at the end of the day you know performance weighs out and we need to to help these guys figure out what's going to help you you know win counts create the best version of this pitch um, as opposed to, again, some pseudo number that, that may or may not help uh, each pitcher specifically. Just a good reminder that the data is good, but it's it's excellent when it's actually put alongside what you see right in front of you. No, no question. And that's kind of the second thing. So we keep TrackMan portable. We're lucky enough to have that uh, piece of equipment. We took it with us on the road to, to Minnesota on our road trip for our, our Sunday guy to get some work in with some of the things. But to me, it just gives – gives a better story to what's going on. It really spells out a little bit deeper into to what these guys are working on. And if they see it enough, it just becomes kind of part of the process. It's not a distraction. They're not trying to, to really overdo anything. It just kind of helps them uh, see where they're at, what they're trying to adjust to, to get where they know the best version of these pitches are, and then helps them reinforce that. And, and I think that's what's so incredibly important. As we're looking at data, we should be using it to either – really support these guys' ability to reinforce the best versions of that pitch or, again, allow it to help us shape some of what is a bigger challenge to see with just our eyes alone. That's really good stuff. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, obviously it's a it's a weird time in, in the world, but, you know, college baseball is one one piece of that. So, you know, with, with the season being cut short, you know, players got an extra year of eligibility, um, you know, Tell me a little bit on some of the challenges that you guys are working through, not just in terms of, of roster management and figuring out who's coming back and who's not. Um, you know, what are the things that you guys are up against as you, as you prepare for the, 
2020, 2021 seasons. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me that that we have to pay attention to is this enormous workload that just didn't happen this year. You know, we have an expectation of how far our starters can take us into games, and um, I'm sure you could probably speak on on that as well. But, um, you know, we just lost maybe 100 innings for a, a couple of our starters, and we just lost a ton of um, of, of that work that, that gets built up and adapted to during that time that they, they just didn't get. And in the fall, we can do some things, but we're still limited to the 20 hours a week, uh, which is a little different in the spring when you're playing games. And so it, it's a challenge to feel like we can safely get these guys off the ground. Uh, I think they've done an incredible job on their own. You know, we had a group of guys that, that, that went to train with you. We have some other guys that just had access to facilities where they could get their work in and continue to try to uh, stay where they, they were and maybe even work on a couple of things. But you're, you're going to have guys come back in, in some different areas ultimately. And, and as a coach, you can't just shove them all into one bucket and say, well, we're all going to have our first scrimmage on, on this date, you've got to be ready for it. And, and if you didn't prepare, well, tough. I mean, guys are going to get hurt in that environment. And so we just have to really pay attention to what these guys have been able to get in. We have a, a couple guys that are still hopeful that we'll get some summer summer baseball in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then after that, we'll, we'll take them where they're at and try to progress as, as much as we possibly can with the given environment that we're giving. And will we be out there as a full team or will we be out there in smaller groups uh, as a result of some precautions, you know, we, we haven't learned anything yet. And I think that's all just a read as we get closer with, with some of the fall sports that come on campus before we do. Um, but, but those are all just things that are fluid and that we have to be prepared for. Uh, and then in the back of my mind, you know, our number one priority at the top of all this stuff is, is keeping guys healthy on the mound. You can't help us yeah. if, if you're not healthy and, and nobody came to campus to play for Duke to, to get themselves injured. Um, yeah. And so it, it, with that being at the top of the list, it, it's just really paying attention to this workload that they either have or haven't gotten in. And then the best way to ramp up through that to, to put them in a position to stay healthy, but also develop and, and have some success. It's definitely a weird time. I, I was speaking with one of our minor league pitchers um, just last week, and, and obviously he's down here. He's in kind of in limbo and threw 120 innings in his last year in college. Mm-hmm. And then he went out and threw, I think, about 25 during the minor league season, the short season team, and then he got another 10 or so in instructs. So he, he built up, you know, 160, 170 innings, whatever it was. You can't just go and throw 20 this year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not just mm-hmm. from like a not developing standpoint, but you're, yeah. you're building that level of work capacity. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see it. Is there a specific like class of players that you think will be most challenging? Like I know obviously you come in a lot of freshmen or, you know, they, they kind of get, uh, you know, they, they get the world rocked when they show up and oh the is higher and yeah. academic and stuff. Do you, do you worry about like a sophomore slump with guys or is it more of, you know, the, the new class of freshmen that come in? They're, they're walking into a new normal that's not even normal. So, no, yeah, I think, you know, to, to start with those freshmen, um, I mean, man, you, you've got to we, – we normally have a month where they can acclimate to campus and some of the, the lifts and the training and stuff that we're doing, and they're in summer school, so they're able to knock out a class or so. Um, and, and they have some opportunities to really just familiarize themselves with everything. And, and obviously we've had these guys in on visits and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, now it's uh, – <laughs> They're not, they're going to try to adapt to all those, you know, where they live, where to get food, lifts, you know, the, the, the way we go about our business as a team. Um, and then on top of that, like we're, we're trying to maybe teach them some new things. They only have so much attention each day that, that we can, that we can grab and, and maybe work off of. And, 
uh, I think it's going to be a significant challenge for those guys to, to do the best they can to hit the ground running and, and not feel overwhelmed. Uh, and, and for us as coaches to do a good job to make sure we feel like that, that we're trying to, to help as much as possible, them feel comfortable and part of the team and, uh, know that they can reach out to, you know, players or, or us or anything like that to, to kind of get their feet grounded a little bit more. But, um, on top of that, you have some idea of, of what these guys are doing, you know, through communication, but, um, you know, their ramp up is going to be uh, a little more unique than it normally would be at this point. Um, and, and so for, for the same reasons, you know, some guys have a, have a little bit different routine. They're going to have to adapt to if they're going to keep up to just the demands of what it takes to, to pitch at this level. And it's just going to take a little bit longer now to, to help those guys through it. Um, the, the, the sophomore slump thing I think is real because I think when guys experience some success and, you know, we had a really short version of that this year. Um, you have to keep an eye on the whole process for them. And I know, uh, I mean, for, for me, as, as we look at this, <clears throat> that that's one of the things that I feel like we have to, to keep an eye on the most. And I think teaching these guys what a process or a system is, uh, understanding that, look, at, at this level, um, where we're trying to go, all those teams are really good. So to say we're going to out-talent them and, and win a College World Series or we're going to out-resource them or out-work them, uh, either working hard or working smart, like all these teams are really good at this stuff. we got to toe the line there for sure. But to just lean on the fact that we're going to do all these things better and that's going to be our, our difference maker, uh, I don't think is an, an accurate uh, assessment of things. And same thing for us as coaches. We've got an incredible coaching staff that all these coaches we're lining up against also have really good coaching staffs and that prepare their players well and that work their butts off. And so, yeah, like we've got to be really good at, at two things. I think one with these guys uh, avoiding that drift that can happen. Um, you know, if you, if you go out in the, in the water, uh, in the ocean and you look up 30 minutes later and you're kind of downstream a little bit and you notice your, your, your chair and stuff's up the beach a little bit. Um, you know, that drift kind of happens, uh, sub, uh, without you knowing. And I think for a lot of times with, with our, our players in general, it's not, and, and us even as coaches, it's not if it's going to happen, but when and then how quickly we can anchor back to our system or our process. Um, so I think that's one of the things that really helps guys avoid that sophomore slump or even in their draft year becoming a little too risk averse or overthinking some things, uh, is helping them stay connected to this system that they've created that they know is directly related to them. And then the other thing is we just have to be really good at telling guys the truth. Um, I, I think that's something that that transparency can, can really be easy to, to sidestep as a coach because sometimes that's a difficult conversation for guys. But, you know, I can show our pitching staff the percentage of guys that throw the first three pitches uh, that are zone strikes, so not necessarily strikes, but strikes that landed in the strike zone. And, and the first three pitches of every at-bat typically are pitches that we're trying to throw in the zone. They're not really chase pitches, obviously, with the exception of 0-2. And to the, to the pitcher, our top half on that list of guys that throws the highest percentage of pitches in the zone are also the top guys that we t traditionally are going to use year in and year out. That That's not really my opinion. It just rolls out that way. And so to hit them with just kind of direct facts and knowing this is what your 
preparing for. This is kind of what you're up against. And this is uh, a common theme that we see for guys that get on the field more compared to guys that don't. Um, and, and if we can provide those two things for them, really helping them connect with their system so they can avoid that drift and then really hit them with the truth to make sure we're on the same page and we can move forward together. I think those those both really help with guys that find themselves in some of these tough spots. That's a great answer <laughs> on, on, a, on a number of fronts. So um, I'm sure our, our editing guy is going to pull some really good highlight reels out of that, that one okay. response. I think that I think the, the honesty though is it's an underappreciated skill in coaching. I think so many people side sidestep the hard conversations, and you know I always try to set that you know kind of uh, expectation early on when I interact with someone is that I'm always going to shoot you straight. You know, over time as the relationship gets stronger, it's going to be easier for me to give you that very direct, honest feedback. But you know, I hope that you're here because you welcome that you want to get better no doubt so no doubt um all right so we always go to a lightning round as we as we start to wrap these up these are <laughs> okay. the, the quick hitter questions and i feel like you asked me this a couple weeks ago so i gotta i gotta ask you in return <laughs> um what's one book that you think every player should read so for us man one of the books i give a lot of our our rookies uh is chop wood carry water um it's mm-hmm. kind of a classic type book it really just hits on a number of things that, that guys can you, you can just as a player, really connect to what with what's going on, what you're trying to, to work towards, the patience of, you know, one of the toughest things with data is, is guys want to over kind of react and, and fix it now. And sometimes we just have to really watch what some common themes are before we choose what the right path is to, to really invest in. And, and part of that book's talking about patience and, you know, just a handful of kind of areas that I think are really helpful for, for young guys trying to, to really build their system or process for every coach all right so this one's a little bit of an outlier but this one is one of the the ones that really squared me up in the in the face when i was reading it um it's called checklist manifesto it's written by uh, a harvard med school surgeon uh atul guande and i think he also has been in that field for i think around 30 years or more and it's incredible you know one of the two distinction it hits you with really early is um, understand the difference in failures of ignorance compared to failures of ineptitude. And a failure of ignorance is one we can kind of live with a little bit more, but just because the science hasn't gotten us here to really be able to, to understand how to prevent that failure. Um, but the ones of ineptitude are the ones that we're probably experiencing or on the, 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 at the risk of experiencing more these days in our sport because we're getting so much more information back with the, the video analysis that we can have and some of the mocap stuff that's out there. And then we, you know, got Edgetronic and TrackMan and we've got all these different, uh, areas of input that can give us insight, not to, to mention some of the, the physical assessments and things like that, that we can really dive into with our players. And if, if we just miss something that's available there to us, that, that's what a failure of an aptitude is when you had the information and you didn't act on it properly and it led to uh, a failure. Um, and so for that, specific reason alone this book kind of got me going a little bit and then he gets into how uh from surgeons to pilots of planes to uh construction uh th- that field ha- how all these guys have created these really simple checklists to help make sure it you know and i, I get it we we use a checklist for the grocery store you know we're, we're talking about uh some some different things with, with all this information we're bringing in now but it, it really helped prevent in, in the medical field, the, the, the rate of uh, infections and death and, and then in construction, uh, some of these buildings that, that shouldn't have collapsed that did. Same thing for aviation, getting the plane off the ground and then landing it again. Uh, it can be critical in making sure with each player we're evaluating 
all the inputs that we have to make sure we're creating a plan moving forward. And so it just outlines some things that relate to that and other professions that really hit, hit home for me. That's good stuff. All right. Next one up is uh, if you could go back in time and give a young Dusty Blake some advice, uh, what would it be? Let's, let's say Dusty Blake, the athlete, and then Dusty Blake, the, the young coach. What do you got? Whew. Okay. Uh, so for, for Dusty Blake, the athlete, um, I would have said try to become a master of one before you become a jack of all trades because I feel like I bounced around a little bit trying to find the next best thing to help me perform better. And I didn't really invest time into becoming proficient or maybe a master of more narrow things that could have still had a big impact. And so that's what I would say. Zero in on, on a handful of things that, that can really help you perform at a high level and don't just jump to the next flashy thing that comes up that's supposed to be the, you know, the next magic bullet that's going to help you win a hundred games or whatever. Um, absolutely. As a, what about the, what about the coach? So as a coach, yeah, I'd probably be a little tougher on myself. Um, <laughs> so I, I think, you know, I would tell myself replace the joy of trying to prove yourself right with the joy of what's true, of learning what's true. Um, kind of seek out thoughtful, it's the idea of, of um, you know, you're trusting who you are and, and trusting yourself, but being radically open minded. Um, you know, seek thoughtful discussion from people that disagree with you. You know, if, if you're always talking with people that align with what you believe, you're not seeing everything from the different angles that you need to to connect with players that are going to perceive it that same way. So just reach out and seek people that that you don't agree with it. It doesn't mean you have to accept their conclusions, but it's great to hear um, from other perspectives and different views than what you have and, and having that thoughtful disagreement with people. That's really good stuff. All right. Last one for you. Um, we have a lot of kids and their parents who listen to this podcast together, you know, a lot of like rides, two games in the car, to and from practice. Yeah. Um, if you give some advice to, to the kids, what would it be? And also, what would you uh, what would you say to the parents? Okay. And this is something that I've been able to, to, to really look into, and it relates to a topic we hit on earlier. Um, let's talk about command. Um, if we look at the idea of command, right now, nobody's painting with three pitches. It's, it's just not happening. If you look at the best performances in the Major League 2019, 2018, you look at any of those, you can go back and look at Maddox's, a uh, complete game that was whatever, 78, 82 pitchers or whatever it may have been. There's a lot of glove movement there, and it's okay. It's 100% okay. They may have command of a specific pitch. They may be able to use their fastball uh, to one side of the plate or another more consistently, but collectively there's a ton of mistakes that, that are going to happen. And so maybe reduce uh, this hyper-focus towards if I don't hit a spot, then I wasn't good enough or – I can't go out there and beat hitters to just winning counts. If you're going to win counts, you're going to put yourself in leverage situations where you don't have to be as perfect with your command and just go after guys because that's going to be your best chance to to put yourself in favorable counts and, and finish those guys off. Um, so, so that would be the, to the, to the player, to the parents, the understanding of luck and randomness that happens in our game and, that can't, you have to understand that to avoid these random rabbit holes that you can take yourself down and get lost in if you're trying to help your son. Um, so if we look at the Astros and Nationals last year in, in the World Series and the game that Grinky's throwing, um, he throws, I want to say it was a 2-0 pitch that in the K zone that we see on our screen, it looked like a strike. Like the full ball looked like it was in the bottom of the zone 
and it doesn't get called. And he goes 3-0. I think he throws a 3-1 strike, and then he walks the hitter uh, on the next pitch and gets taken out. Um, so in that moment, he, he had some bad luck right there. If, if the 2-0 pitch gets called and it's 2-1 and then he throws a strike behind, it's 2-2. You, know, you don't know. Maybe he finishes that inning. They've got a one nothing lead. Um, maybe, you know, who, who knows? But there's some luck and randomness there. And then you, you look at the matchup that happens right after he comes out. So Harris is, is facing Kendrick. Um, I think career against Kendrick, uh, Harris had like an opponent batting average, or Kendrick versus Harris had a batting average around 162 or 172, just a really favorable matchup. Harris throws this beautiful executed slider down and away, and Kendrick barrels it off the foul pole. I mean, it, it's a good pitch. Um, he executed it well. He did everything he could in a matchup that normally is going to play out in, in the favor of the pitcher. Uh, and things happen. Kendrick went down and got it and, you know, gave them the uh, a one-run lead, and they go on to win the World Series. But sometimes those things happen. It, it doesn't mean that pitch wasn't a quality pitch. It doesn't mean he did something different or it's not good enough. Just this game is going to uh, express luck and randomness if you play it enough, and, and those things are going to happen. And just making sure you don't get lost down the wrong rabbit hole trying to fix something that, that may not may not need it. Nice. Well, this has been outstanding. I think I also need to make sure before I sign off, I give you a big congrats. Bryce Jarvis is a, a, <laughs> yeah. the num- number 18 overall pick, a highest draft pick in Duke baseball history. And um, I had a chance to work with Bryce and he raved about the work you guys did. So I know you've awesome. a really, really big part in that. So we're super happy. So Bryce, I'm sure you're listening. We're, we're proud of you, bud. Good no job. Doubt. No doubt. Um, congratulations to you and Coach Pollard and the rest of the crew there. Uh, folks can find you on Twitter. It's at Pitching360. That's right. Um, good account. Lots of It's a good uh, collection of stuff you put out and stuff you compile from others. So actually a really, really good resource on the net. So um, listen, Dusty, we really appreciate you coming on, man. This is awesome stuff. And uh, hopefully uh, the world comes back to normal a little bit and get to get back out there and start doing your thing again. Yeah, but I hope so. I hope so, man, for, for my sake, but certainly for our guys' sake. I know they're ready to get after and get back out there on the field. For sure. All right, we appreciate you coming on. Take hey, care, yeah, man. definitely. Really appreciate it, Eric. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.